Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Pain is an interesting sensation. You can have pain in areas with no trauma and even have pain in limbs that no longer exist. And you can also have the lack of pain where there clearly is trauma, which means there is much more to pain than we would expect. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today I have Ryan Foley on the show to talk about chronic pain and ways to mitigate the sensation of pain. He breaks down what leads us to feeling pain and how that information can teach us how to help those who suffer from chronic pain. So let's dive into my conversation with Ryan Foley. Dr. Ryan Foley earned his Doctor of Physical Therapy and Bachelor's Degree in Health Sciences, Psychology, and Gerontology from Nazareth College of Rochester, New York. He has worked in a sports performance center delivering treatment to professional athletes from teams such as the Miami Dolphins, Denver Broncos, and the USA Olympic Sailing Team. He also co-founded Integrated Kinetic Neurology, which is a health and rehabilitation education course for movement and rehab practitioners. Thank you for coming on to the show, Ryan. Absolutely, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. And I would love to learn more about your background since you do have such a wide background, especially with working with you know, pro athletes and then um, creating the ICANN program. So what got you into all of this? Yeah, it's, it, I had kind of an interesting um, introduction into the world of rehabilitation, I suppose. I, I, I actually didn't start working with um, those professional athletes until after I worked in a prosthetics and orthotics rehabilitation unit in, in New York when I first graduated. And, and that's actually what got me into looking at the, the nervous system and how the nervous system influences the movements of our our musculoskeletal system you know in in school and in the doctor program with with physical therapy they teach you an awful lot about how we can address the the musculoskeletal system when it comes to to rehab and and even athletic performance and and all the rest but we we rarely get an insight into how the nervous system influences the the musculoskeletal system and how we can actually merge those two those two layers together and so i was actually working with with a lot of amputees um, with chronic pain and going through prosthetic rehabilitation. I actually did my, my research in prosthetic rehab as well in the last year of um, of the doctor program. We were kind of looking at how different prosthetic limbs, prosthetic devices uh, affect the, the efficiency of an individual's gait or their, their walking in, um, in the, the external environment, not just in the clinical environment, but the external environment. And the, the prosthetists that we were working with, both in the in the research project and the um, and the clinic I was working in, really opened my eyes to completely different research that we can actually use as physical therapists. Because, and I found this fascinating. And some people think, well, how how did you actually get from prosthetics and ro- and robotics and orthotics into into the nervous system? And it's it's because what the what the researchers actually do when they're trying to find or identify the the qualities that a prosthetic limb needs to express is they have to analyze natural movement or able-bodied movement, they would say, someone without an amputation or without a prosthetic limb. And so what they need to look at, if they're looking at the lower limb, they need to look, step back and understand 
what are the the universal qualities or the main qualities that 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 lower limb has to express in order to maintain robustness or the ability to withstand stress as they move through the world and so they they literally do all the hard work for us they they simplify human movement for us and they take those qualities that we all express as humans and they try and mimic it in a prosthetic limb or a robotic limb and so i found that fascinating because when you look at all the research around physical therapy the research is completely overcomplicated things it's it's you can have some people that do some things other people that go down different paths and and it's just mind-boggling but if we can step back and just look at the, the the basic fundamental qualities that the human movement system has to express and then try and exploit those when we're helping people in pain we can have a massive a massive influence and so what they call it in prosthetics and robotics when they're trying to create a prosthetic limb is they call it biomimicry where they try and mimic the human biology in a prosthetic limb and i just i found that absolutely fascinating and so we i, I learned so much about how the the body has evolved in in its design and it just gives you a newfound respect for how we need to alter our assessment and our rehab strategies like for example like when you look at the 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 muscle mass distribution throughout the body you've got a lot more muscle mass distributed proximally versus as you make your way distally to the end point of the limbs you have much less muscle mass and you have a lot more kind of complex joint structure you have a lot more tendinous tissues a lot more non-contractile components and that makes evolutionary sense because it wouldn't be very energy efficient for me to have big bulky hands or big bulky feet to, to make my way through the world very efficiently you know and so there's 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 a reason there's a reason for it and so if we can if we can exploit those properties in a rehabilitation setting and, and kind of step back and, and think about how does this carry over into physical therapy rehab then we can have a massive change because really when you look at someone's movement like we're, we're all different but beneath the surface we have very very similar mechanisms we have very similar qualities that allow our system to be able to adapt to the stress when it comes to real world movement and so that's what that's what really really got me into and, and that's really what led to the development of ikn is that we I, I was massively sort of dissatisfied with with the approach that we learned in in school like we weren't really given much of an approach to take into a clinical scenario when we're assessing a client in pain and so i just i i needed to to try and understand human movement more and, and develop a, a more of a clear framework that i can use when assessing a client because when a client would come and see me with back pain or any kind of pain i would get stressed out because i actually I didn't know where I would look, what I would go after to have this person in pain. But if I had these fundamental principles that I knew would need to be expressed for them to move without the need for pain or protection, then I knew that I can I can at least have some kind of influence on, on their movement as a whole and the ability of their body to move in a pain-free manner. And so what we do at IKEA now is we just merge those qualities with musculoskeletal rehab. And uh, it really allows for us to to treat the body in a very, very effective manner, just by allowing for a kind of a clear process in your mind as to how you would approach movement. And you just merge fundamental principles of human movement with more local strategies. You know, all the local strategies I kind of think is that, like the sexy stuff, the fancy stuff that people like to 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 use on Instagram that look cool. But really, is that going to influence much change when you really step back and look at the things that make human movement system robust and very stress resistant so it, it really kind of developed from that yeah it, it's absolutely fascinating that you're talking about amputees and prosthetics um because as we start talking more about pain 
they have some interesting ways of expressing pain, especially with phantom pain and all that type of stuff. So I'll definitely definitely want to ask you more about that. Um, But you have mentioned some fundamental principles that can lead to pain. So can you Mm -hmm. start breaking those down? What would a principle look like? Yeah, so when it comes to pain, I think it's, it's worth considering that, like if we were to look at it from a standpoint of pain that someone might develop that just gradually comes on, you know, it's not necessarily um, there after any kind of tissue trauma or a pure kind of clear mechanism of injury, but the pain that kind of just comes on the body, that non-specific kind of pain that many of our clients as physical therapists will have. And so it's kind of a, a bit more kind of confusing in the mind of a physiotherapist why that might be occurring. So when we think of pain from an ICAM perspective, pain is really the ultimate form of protection. Right? And so it's, it's there to protect your body from dealing with excessive stress. Because stress is not necessarily a bad thing, but when it, if stress exceeds your capacity, what well, from an ICAM perspective, because we, we, kind of, we deal with the neurology an awful lot and the nervous system, essentially the same thing. But when someone is expressing pain, from our perspective, that's when the higher parts of the brain feel the need to step forward to protect our body for us. Right, so that's that. Your brain is constantly um, making estimates of the capability of your body on a moment-to-moment basis. It's constantly receiving snapshots of your body's position in space, your body's ability to adapt to certain pressures and stresses on your body, and so it's always making these estimations. And so, if it estimates and it comes to a conclusion to say, "Hey, I don't really trust that your your tissues, the meat of your body." The, the structure of your body can handle this stress. So I'm going to step forward and ultimately express pain because that pain ultimately holds some level of survival value. It holds value because obviously the pain is there to stop you from doing something that's leading to a painful experience. And so then we, we need to essentially take the shift then to say, okay, how can I actually prove to my nervous system that I do have the ability to express these built-in protective mechanisms throughout my body, right? And so when it comes to improving someone's pain experience, we essentially have to establish proof of protection to the nervous system. So the nervous system doesn't have to feel the need to express pain, right? So if someone comes to me with with pain in their their lower back, for example, I'm not just gonna go in and start rubbing the back and stretching the back. I'm, I'm stepping back and understanding, okay, how does that lower back fit within the context of whole body movement? And, and why does the nervous system feel the need to express pain there? Is the lower back perhaps being overloaded? And so a, a principle, to keep it kind of specific to the lower back even, just because it, it might help people kind of form better context around that. When you look at the lower back, the lower back sits on top of the lower limbs, right? And so you don't see many people walking down the street on their hips or their lower back. They walk on the street with their feet contacting the, gr- the ground first. So their feet ultimately collide with the ground and it's the feet that have to be able to tolerate that stress through ground reaction forces like like what Gary Gray talks an awful lot about as well, right? We have to be able to dampen that stress on our lower limb before our back needs to excess any kind of any kind of protection or any kind of tension or increased tone, you can say. So what I see an awful lot clinically is that if someone has a lot of lower back tension or lower back pain, my mind doesn't go straight to the lower back. My mind goes to the capacity of the lower limb to be able to adapt to the stress acting on the lower limb during upright movement. So w- one, of the, one of the big things in, in 
when you're looking at things from a nervous system perspective is that a lot of our movement is organized around strategies right so if i if i go to to move my lower limb for example to take a step i don't think okay what does my hip have to do what does my knee have to do what does my foot have to do it just does it but it organizes the movement around a specific body part from a neural standpoint and it typically will organize that movement around the distal part of the limb so around the end point it, they call it um, in prosthetics and robotics interface mechanics like the foot is the interface with your environment and so the nervous system will, will kind of guide movement around the foot, and then everything else will take on more of a self-regulatory role, right? So if my, when my foot is the ground, I will want to have a lot of responsiveness around my foot and ankle. So that provides a nice platform for everything else up the chain to respond to that, that force acting on my, on my whole lower limb. So if I, if I have too much conscious awareness, in my knee, for example, or in my hip, for example, or in my lower back, that doesn't allow my nervous system to organize that strategy around my, my foot. It's like in the, in the upper limb as well. So the, the way the nervous system strategically directs conscious awareness is really, really important because you can't be consciously aware of your whole body 100% of the time. It's impossible to, as I sit here now, it's impossible for me to, to be aware of all my toes, all my fingers, all my, my muscles, my joints. It's impossible. So we have to strategically place conscious awareness and the endpoint awareness allows us to um to provide the uh, uh, the opportunity for the tissues proximally to up the chain to to take on more of a self-regulatory role and so one of the one of the, the key anatomical principles that allow for that is the the expression of biarticular muscles muscles that cross two joints right so when, when you look at the anatomical kind of um, design of the body you look at the limbs versus the midline and you, you look at the limbs and you say, okay, there's a lot longer muscles in the limbs and there's a lot more tendinous tissues, longer tendons in my limbs versus my, my midline. And then you ask yourself, well, why might that be the case? Is because the limbs are designed to dampen stress when, you're, when your body interacts with the environment. And so those tendons, those biarticular muscles allow us to dampen stress and redistribute stress well. So my midline, Everything through my middle and my head, my ribcage, my spine, my pelvis can actually maintain the ability to be nice and adaptable or to be movable. And so if I don't have the ability to take advantage of these biarticular tissues throughout my upper limb and lower limb, if I don't have the ability to um, allow the, the non-contractile, the passive components, like the fascia, the tendons, all these passive tissues to be able to distribute stress because that's really that's a huge role of those tissues to be able to share stress so we're not all muscle driven so the the tendons components is, is basically it's it's a way for our system to dampen stress on our system essentially the tendons allow us to distribute stress from movement of the muscles from loading the muscles over a greater surface area so that things, the tissues and systems can cooperate. And so a, a big thing, a big principle when it comes to, to rehabilitation is, is looking at the, the fundamental role of the different parts of the body. So you look at the limb versus the midline of the body. I don't want to be walking around with a very stiff spine, a very stiff core, a very stiff trunk. And so very often, if you have a client with lower back pain or any kind of midline pain, it could be neck pain. You don't want to go straight into those body parts. You want to look at well, what are the main things that interact with the environment? It's not their neck. They're not 
picking up things with their neck or their elbows or their knees. They're picking up things with their hands and, and they're, they're interacting with the ground through their foot. So I want to see how those tissues are, are tolerating stress well. So that my midline can maintain adaptability and it doesn't have to go into protective or express protective tone and, and increase tension. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I believe it was, I've heard Lenny say this, he talking about, um, you know, pain in different regions of the body. And he described it as uh, victims are usually the ones that are screaming and yelling for help. And then the criminals are the ones that are hiding elsewhere exactly. and trying not to be found. And so right. kind of like what you're talking about, you know, the low back could hurt, but the criminal could be all the way down at the foot. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a, it's such an important thing to consider because I mean, when I was a new grad physical therapist, I mean, back pain was, was about the back. It was about nothing else. It was maybe about the pelvis, maybe about the hips. If you want to really think outside the box, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's for people to really understand it, understand this. You just have to step back and look at real world human movement. Like what, what does the client hack actually have to do when they step outside your gym or clinic door into the real world? You know, they have to walk on their legs unless, unless they're, an amputee and they have to work with prosthetic limbs but that's kind of what got me thinking about that so hey i was i was seeing an awful lot of clients with lower back pain and pain around their residual limb and it's because the the actual prosthetic limb wasn't doing enough work to dampen that stress on the system so they're expressing a little bit too much tension and so the nervous system felt the need to express protection in the form of pain around the around those tissues so that's what got me thinking into stepping back and looking at these kind of fundamental principles when it comes to, to movement and, and looking at the, the muscular skeletal design of the body and how we can, we can actually take advantage of that. So when it comes to pain, just in general, um, when you experience, you know, that dull type of pain, is that typically from long-term uh, compensations on the body or is that uh, typically more acute type situations? Yes, yeah, so, so clinically, I, I kind of see a bit of both. You know, even with acute injuries, you might see a little bit of more sharp pain. You might see more dull pain, throbbing-like pain. For me, I don't necessarily kind of think too much about what the um, description of pain means, because to me, that 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 pain experience is just the nervous system's need to protect. So I ultimately need to do more investigative work to understand why that area needs to be protected or why it needs this higher level of protection because I, I made the mistake kind of early on in narrowing my narrowing my focus way too soon when it comes to pain and I, I think if you if you're really trying to to narrow your focus too soon and understand well what does that mean or what what is what does that dullness sensation mean or what does that kind of sharpness sensation mean what does that throbbing like sensation mean I mean you might be able to then um maybe administer a certain kind of intervention, local intervention to influence that. But does that really hold them when they step out into the real world? And so that's, that's, what, that's the biggest thing is that you have to understand, are you preparing your clients for the real world movement? And so I tend, obviously I, I have to give it some, some thought when, when a client has those type of, of pain descriptors. But fundamentally, I like to to merge more kind of global based strategies with local based strategies first. Like so, if somebody has like a dullness type sensation around their their shoulder, for example, I want to look at that shoulder in the context of the entire upper limb. 
I want to see can they tolerate load through the entire upper limb before doing an awful lot of local work around the shoulder. And I will definitely do local work around the shoulder in the first session. But ultimately, I want to prove protection first to the nervous system. And so the nervous system needs to know that that shoulder is going to be protected. It needs to know that it can share stress throughout the whole upper limb. So maybe the shoulder is doing way too much. It's, it's tolerating too much load. And maybe we need to start to share load throughout the whole upper limb. Maybe that's why the, the, the shoulders is expressing that dullness. Maybe that's why it's expressing that sharpness, because ultimately that could be overloading a, a neural tissue, which may be the reason why you're experiencing more sharp pain. It could be overloading more of a muscle tissue, which might be the reason why you're experiencing more dullness and throbbing sensation. But it doesn't tell me why that issue is there in the first place. And, and, and I never, I never uh, try to, to say that I know exactly why, because I, I, I don't think we'll ever understand why pain is there. Right, because everyone's unique and everyone has has different past experiences and different movement habits. But what we do possess is we we possess similar properties throughout the body. We possess a similar design, and so I, I know a lot of people have these non-contractile components. A lot of people have these biarticular tissues. A lot of people have limbs in a midline that that need to operate in a certain way. And so I will merge these fundamental um, qualities with local strategies. So. Uh, what we find at ICANN is that when we can merge local strategies around the shoulder, if we're looking at the shoulder, with more global strategies, looking at it within the context of the entire upper limb and midline, then we can facilitate much more change. Because now we're looking at things from multiple layers and the body needs to tolerate stress from multiple layers in order to move efficiently. Right? It needs to share stress, it needs cooperation, it needs coordination amongst systems and tissues and structures for movement and so i think i think the we run into a big issue especially when we're teaching courses and we're working on we have new grads in the in in as part of the the audience when we're when we're teaching these courses they'll go local very, very way too soon they'll narrow their focus way too soon and so if you narrow your focus too soon you, you tend to kind of go after symptoms as opposed to really restoring that robust movement because like if somebody had like a sharp pain, let's say in their anterior shoulder, and you're you're trying to to improve the low tolerance of the the anterior shoulder, you you actually you and you haven't actually assessed the entire upper limb. You don't know whether or not you're actually restoring robust movement because you're just looking locally. So you haven't looked at the the shoulder in the context of the entire upper limb, and it doesn't mean that the issue is not in the shoulder, but it means that we're covering more bases. We're covering. We're, we're giving ourselves more of an opportunity to have a positive change on that individual's movement capabilities when we look at things from a global and local strategy. Yeah, that's a great example because a lot of times coming out of school, right, they're teaching you, I mean, you spend years learning all the local information about every single part of the body. So that's your go-to because that's what you mm -hmm. learned. Exactly. But like you're saying, Look at the global body, see how the entire thing is moving. Mm -hmm. Then you can zoom local to see that area that's impacted, what's going on there. And then you can zoom back out and see how that can integrate back into the system so you get a better idea how to treat them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think it's important, to, I think, to consider as well as that it's never like rehab or movement, uh, improving someone's movement capacity is never it's never a linear process. You know, mm -hmm. I, we all we all learn that in school when we're learning healing times and we're learning all this this sort of stuff. And we come into th into the world of physical therapy thinking, okay, I need to, like someone has back pain, I need to get the multifidi firing first, 
and the transverse abdominis firing first, then I can look at it in the context of the whole trunk, and then I can start adding more dynamic movement. But it never really works like that. I, you need to, to first establish proof of protection, and, and that means that early on in the rehab process or treatment process, you need to merge local and global. And so you're doing a bit of both. It's never just local first, then you're moving towards more global, but a bit of both, but then you're sort of filtering things out and, and always moving towards or biasing more global strategies then as you move throughout the rehab process, if, if that makes sense. And so we'd always kind of do a little bit of both at the very beginning to, to have more influence on the system and then move towards more global movement towards the as, as we kind of move throughout the rehab and treatment process. So going back to coming out of school, again, you learn a lot of stuff um, by putting someone on a table while in school. Yep. But now you're talking about, you know, trying to see what people do in real life activity and how they're moving and um, how to support them with that, which typically they're not spending their time on a table. <laughs> so with your assessment process, are you assessing on, ta- on a table or are you putting them through different movement patterns and assessing from there? Yeah, it, it, it kind of depends on the, the capacity of the clients when they come into my clinic. You know, if, if, they, if they are really kind of experiencing a great deal of pain, I want to do assessments in a position where gravity is having less of an influence. So obviously, I mean, gravity is that, that continuous stressor that we always have to deal with. So just getting someone into supine on a table will allow us to reduce gravity on their system. But then what I have to do is I have to be gravity. My, my job as a therapist is to be the stressor. Because I want to ultimately see, I want to get an insight into how their movement is, how, how I want to get an insight into how well they would be able to move in the real world through the manner in which I assess them. So when, when I assess somebody, I'm assessing them in a way that allows me to, to view the movement capacity of the, of the entire limb. So w- when, I, when I look at assessments, I always look at assessments as being, they, they need to, to check or they need to assess the the problem solving behavior of the client you know and so i i never try to make assessments too easy for the client because i want to challenge them because ultimately when they step outside the clinic door in the real world they're going to be they're they're encountering movement problems every single second and so their their movement is is essentially an expression of their their problem solving behavior their ability to solve movement problems essentially right so so i i like to make things challenging if i get a client in supine on the table so I want to stress them in a way that gives me the understanding of how their tissues will be expressing movement in the real world. So I never, I never like to be too easy with my clients. Um, ideally, though, we can, we can get an, an awful lot of information of their capacity in a standing position as well. And like I said, it just depends on, on their capacity as a whole. If, if they have the ability to stand and I can gather information where maybe they're not in too much pain, acute pain, or they're not overly sensitive that I can do things in standing. But if they are in a supine position, I have to be a little bit more kind of stressful, if that makes sense. I need to I need to be gravity in a way and not just go through kind of basic, like if I'm checking hip range of motion in supine, that doesn't mean that they'll be able to express that range of motion in a standing position when their foot is contacting the ground. So like I'll, I'll do an awful lot of assessments through the foot and identify the biarticular tissue's capacity to tolerate stress and their ability to tolerate stress through the non-contractile components as well in a supine position. But it, it's a, it's safe in a way. It's, I do an awful lot of assessments from an isometric standpoint. Um, I like to use isometrics when it comes to assessment um, because 
when you look even look into the research, a lot of our movement in the real world in real world scenarios is actually isometric, where our tissues, our muscular tissues, maintain a certain length, and it's actually the passive elements, the non-contractile elements that that go through the movement to be able to tolerate stress and forces. And so, I think isometrics, from an assessment standpoint, and from a rehabilitation standpoint, can can get you very very far with um with either assessment or rehab because we alluded to at the very beginning as well is that your brain's estimating your body's capacity on a moment-to-moment basis and so an isometric contraction is a a, a moment in time of a contraction in a, in a joint position for example so you're, you're trying to produce force or you're trying to resist force in a certain position and that connects with this moment-to-moment feedback where the brain's just getting a snapshot of what the body is capable of in that position but it wouldn't be like i don't do an awful lot of classical muscle testing you know where people will go in and and say push into my hand and hold for like a second or two and then say oh you're strong because for me that's not real world movement like strength being strong is not doesn't necessarily mean you're a very good mover and a very adaptable mover and you can see that in, in very very strong people like powerlifters doesn't mean they're going to be able to move with lots of variability and adaptability if they can if they can squat and deadlift a thousand pounds because and, and this is one of the principles that you you kind of asked me about earlier on is that what do we need is that we we need to be able to estimate the right amount of force when it comes to to movement right so and, and that allows us to be very energy efficient so like if i'm reaching for the cup in front of me right now I shouldn't need to express 100% of my voluntary muscular contraction to be able to carry out that movement because that would be very energy inefficient for me to do that. So I need to estimate how much force is necessary. So I might only express maybe 10% of my involuntary, of my maximal voluntary contraction. So I want to get an, in, an insight into the client's ability to estimate the right amount of forces because what you'll see an awful lot of time is in clients that have an awful lot of tension and, and high tone or even pain in their body is that they only know zero to 100. You know, they don't know the in-between. They like to, to move with very noisy contractions in their body. So they're very energy inefficient with their movement. And so I think one of the, one of the key things when it comes to helping someone in pain and reducing tension in their body is actually allowing them to tolerate stress at a very, very low threshold. So I, I will do an awful lot of isometric contractions and, and, a very specific isometric strategy at a very low threshold while allowing them to match their breath with that type of demand from the movement task, for example. So like if I have a client do an isometric at a very low threshold, I don't want them breathing like they're running a sprint because that's there's a mismatch in the the energy demand for that task then. So I want to match their breathing capacity with the actual um with the actual contraction. Um demand of the task as well so i'll do low threshold isometrics very very um relaxed breathing strategies and and, and we can even talk about the breathing strategies too because I, I do an awful lot of work with with breathing and and one of one of the people i learned a lot from was was a guy called brian mckenzie he, he, he's the i think he's one of the co-founders of the art of breath but brian mckenzie's a, a great guy to look into when it when it comes to anything about breath work and not just breath work where you're looking at things from a relaxation standpoint, but breath work from a standpoint of how can you maintain a very robust physiology when it comes to movement in the real world? How do you maintain resilience to stress 
Yeah, and so with with breathing, it's it's really important to to understand how an individual is breathing in in real world environments because the respiratory system is under constant stress because you're breathing twenty thousand plus times per day, and so that's a lot of continuous stress on the respiratory system. And and so it's it's important to understand these continuous stressors that act on our bodies on a daily basis. And the main ones are are gravity. It's always trying to pull you down to the ground. And breathing, we, we tend to think of breathing as this thing that we use to relax our bodies, but any kind of stress on the system, stress isn't necessarily a bad thing, but stress is, is anything that puts pressure on our system or anything that respond, or that requires a response. And so when I breathe in, I'm getting a lot of stretching of tissues and structures around my ribcage, around my spine. That's going to feed back up to the nervous system, and the nervous system is going to have a response to that information. So it's still a stress because it's 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 needing some kind of energy to respond to that feedback from my body. And so a big a big part of it is really just reframing our perception of stress and and being more strategic with how we actually deliver stress to the system from a rehabilitation standpoint. Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about the way you breathe and how that expands through, um, you know, your diaphragm and everything, too, because I don't know what it's like over uh, where you are, but we have a lot of people with uh, GI stress. Mm. And like you said, stress to the body can cause all sorts of stuff. But when you have a lot of inflammation in your digestive tract and especially around the intestines, then it makes it more difficult for people to fully utilize their diaphragm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the interaction between the diaphragm, and the rib cage is such an interesting, it's such an interesting coupling and, and cooperation amongst different tissues. And, and like, even when you look into the, the neurology of the diaphragm, the, the diaphragm doesn't necessarily possess an awful lot of receptors that feed back to the nervous system that give you an awareness of the, the diaphragm. Like as we're sitting here now, you, you're not necessarily aware of your diaphragm. And so the diaphragm will be driven by the rib cage. So the rib cage is loaded with what they call mechanoreceptors, which are the, the kind of the nerve receptors that feed information back up to the brain to give your brain an understanding of where your rib cage is in space or where your body is in space. And so a lot of times people will actually only only belly breathe when it comes to improving diaphragmatic movement but you actually want to do both belly breathing and try to get some movement and expansion of the rib cage because as i breathe in i'm going to get typically an elevation of my rib cage an expansion of my rib cage and my diaphragm will contract or descend and then as i exhale my rib cage will compress it will depress and flex typically and the diaphragm will actually relax and ascend. And so what we try to, to do an awful lot when it comes to improving someone's breath coordination or their breathing capacity is try and improve the coupling of the diaphragm with the ribcage. And that comes back to just getting the ribcage to move through a nice full excursion. And that's looking at things from more of a, I suppose you can say a neuromechanical perspective, but obviously we know that there's other um, there's other layers that we can view breathing through too, like psychological layers and and even um, kind of gastrointestinal layers as well. Yeah, I think, like you said, breathing is one of those components that a lot of people forget about, and it can have a very profound uh, impact on everybody, really. 
Exactly. Yes. I mean, we all have to, I mean, breathing is the, the one thing that's going to get you from, from now to five or six minutes from now, you know, so you, you, you definitely need to breathe. <laughs> so it, it has an impact over on your, your, your brain's uh, ability to, to know that you have the capacity to protect your own body. Like breathing is one of those things that if you can't breathe well, the nervous system's probably not going to feel as though you have the capacity to protect your body. And so you're going to see a lot of people who are under stress, perhaps in pain, hold their breath, or the respiratory rate will, will, will increase quite a lot. And so you can look at it from many different perspectives. You can look at it from a standpoint of our breathing uh, rates isn't matching the demand of the tasks that we're actually expressing. Like I could be just walking around my house right now, but from my, my breathing rate, that's my breathing rate matches what, what it should actually express as if I'm running a sprint, for example. So that's, that's, a, that's a significant mismatch in the system there. But also you can look at it from a feedback standpoint. Breathing is the, the one thing that's going to constantly deliver feedback from your midline, from your lower back, from the tissues around your spine, from your rib cage, from your gut, all the way, up, way back up to your nervous system. It's a, constant, it's a constant feedback system when it comes to giving the brain that constant updated information about where your body is in space. And so if, you, if you're not merging specific breathing work, with your musculoskeletal rehab if you have any kind of pain or if you're even if you're a physical therapist or any kind of healthcare practitioner you're really missing out on 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 some golden stuff with trying to get your clients to the next stage of of rehab or just trying to to improve their overall tolerance to stress when it comes to movement you see so there's so many so many nice ways that you can look at integrating breathing with um with any kind of movement or any kind of load strategy uh when it comes to movement so does pain change in the body when you have uh, um, actual physical damage to your system somewhere versus um, just a sensation of pain that's created by protection from the brain? Yeah, so if, if there is an actual issue in the, the tissue, so to speak, then our focus shifts towards supporting the, the healing of that tissue, you can say, right? So we, we still obviously want to load it, to encourage that healing because we know stress allows for or facilitates adaptive changes in the tissues and allows them to, to to become more robust to stress and so we need to stress the those tissues that may be expressing some kind of damage you can say or some kind of issue you can say in the actual tissue but then we also need to support it by influencing the the neighboring tissues and neighboring structures so I, I would still always come back to this this fundamental principle of looking at the, the local area and how the local area fits in with the, within the context of the, the rest of the neighboring tissues. And it obviously depends on where the, the issue is. Like if it's, a, if it's a hand, wrist, elbow, shoulder, neck issue, I'm going to look at the, the entire upper limb. I'm going to look at the, the midline as well. So I would still look at it from a protective standpoint. And I'm, I'm still looking at it from when, when it comes to rehab from a standpoint of continuously trying to prove to the nervous system that we have the ability to protect our bodies because you, you could even see like even people without any kind of pain you, you can still get an mri and and see some kind of tissue changes and they've done lots of research on that where i mean you could you could pull 100 people off the street and do an mri of their lower back and you, you might see some kind of disc changes some bony changes around the spine but it doesn't necessarily mean that 
there is pain in that area. So the, the nervous system obviously has not felt the need that we need to express pain to protect things down there. And that, that could be for many different reasons. It could be from, from, from a standpoint of that it actually feels as though that your body is robust and it's sharing stress over a greater surface area. So it doesn't need, feel the need to, to protect. But it could also be just your overall stress levels. Because stress, we, we always we talk about a fundamental principle of our approach as well is that all stress will pull from the same resource pool, right? So stress is just stress. When you come into the world as a baby, you don't have an infinite amount of, of resources or energy to respond to stress. So physical-based stress will pull from that pool. Digestive stress will pull from that pool. Cognitive or intellectual stress will pull from that same pool. So if you're stressed from a, let's say, a, 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 like you, you mentioned the a nutritional standpoint, that can still influence your brain's perception of the, the protective capacity of your body, for example. If, you, if you're stressing yourself from a cognitive standpoint or a mental standpoint, then that can influence the amount of resources that your brain has to make good decisions about whether it's necessary to express pain in the body. And so it always comes back to just looking at the, the entire human system and looking at many different layers. And obviously, as, as a physical therapist, it's kind of, if I'm working with a client in, in, in pain, sometimes it's, it might be a little bit of outside of my scope to address their, their, their gastrointestinal system or their, their digestive system. So I will obviously refer to the, the, the right practitioners at, at the right time if, if, if I'm not seeing any kind of change. Because what I see in clinic is that if we, if we can get as many layers as possible to tolerate stress well, and to to adapt to that stress well, and just and prove to the brain that it can protect itself, and and obviously from from what we spoke about already, you you can you can appreciate that there's many ways to prove protection to the the nervous system, and it's not just loading a specific muscle or loading a specific tendon. It can just be getting the overall system more resourceful to be able to make better decisions about whether it's necessary to express pain. So, sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there in terms of looking at kind of pain as a structural issue but it, it would still it would still um it would still kind of fall under the same approach it, it just it might take a little bit longer to improve the adaptive changes of that specific tissue if there's an issue there and um, but we, we would still take the the same approach and like i mentioned earlier uh when i said something about the uh the phantom pain yes. so uh, um you know people that have been amputated they can still have pain in the limb that they no longer have. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what's going on there? Yeah, and the, the research, I think, is still a little bit up in the air here. But I mean, there's there's kind of main kind of fundamental concepts that they've they've kind of gathered from the research they've done already. And that, and that when you when you really think about it, if somebody if somebody's limb is amputated, that's that's done over a very very short space of time, right within within minutes. Now, within our, within our nervous system, the higher parts of our nervous system, we have maps of our body. So if I was to, to wiggle my big toe on my right foot, for example, right now, that will essentially light up the, the representation of my big toe within my nervous system. And, so, and, and that's important to have those maps of the body because your brain is in a little black cave. It's, in, it's, it's, it's not directly accessing. The outside world it needs feedback from your muscles from your joints from your nerves to know where your body is in space and so 
it's, it needs that constant feedback. So it has these maps and th these maps are constantly being updated to give the brain that representation of where your body is in space. So if somebody comes along or if it's, if it's, if it's traumatic in nature and you lose a limb, you still have that map of your lower limb in the nervous system, but you do not possess the, the structure of the limb on your body because it's, it's, it's been amputated. And so that creates a huge mismatch in the nervous system. And so this mismatch is what cr creates the need to protect. And as we've, we've spoken about already, that need for protection is expressed in the form of pain. And so you can still feel a pain in your big toe, for example, even though your big toe is not there, because your brain still has a map of that big toe. Now, obviously, over time, that, might, that map might diminish. Over time, it might take, might take a long time to, to diminish that map um, or, or, or completely allow that map to, to clear out completely. Um, but there are, are strategies early on during the, the rehab process that we, can, that we can use to reduce the perception of, of, of danger, you can say. Because I, I never like to say that, talk about the perception of pain because there's never, never necessarily a perception of pain, but there's a perception of the need to express pain. There's a perception of stress or a mismatch or threats on our system. And so the nervous system makes the decision to express pain as a protective response. So it all comes back to protection. So a lot of the, the rehab strategies that we might use from a clinical standpoint, and I've, currently I, I don't do an awful lot of work with amputees at this moment. I did in the US, but I, I moved back from the US three, three years, three and a half years ago. So I haven't done an awful lot of this work since, but we, we did an awful lot of mirror-based therapy. I'm sure you've come across mirror-based therapy. Uh, before mm -hmm. uh, it's it's just it's just proving to the brain again so if i have if i have my right limb that's 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 been amputated what i can do is i can if i, I can sit up in my chair i can have a mirror facing the mirror side is facing my left lower limb and so if i look into the mirror to my nervous system i'm perceiving my right lower limb and so now all of a sudden you've proved to the nervous system hey that hey my lower limb is there and so now the nervous system updates its, its estimation of the body. So it always comes back to that, that constant estimation that, that it's, it's actually expressing and, and that, that it's, it's, it's constantly gathering from the body through feedback. So if you use your visual system, you can use your visual system to prove to the brain that the limb's still there. And so it reduces the pain temporarily, of course, um, but it has an influence on the expression of protection in the form of pain. So it's it's a really fascinating concept, and it's really fascinating when you when you can kind of you know push past the all the the neuroscience the neurosciencey kind of stuff you can say, and just look at the fundamental principles of protection and the need to protect when when a mismatch arises or when threat or danger arises, because really that's all our, our nervous system wants to to do is to protect our our overall system. So there are some people that are just constantly in pain and it feels like their entire pain uh, their entire body is in pain can mm -hmm. your brain and body try to overprotect the system definitely yeah that, that's a really good point because what we tend to see is that especially in uh, persistent pain pain that's been been around for a long time what that typically means and again I'm, I'm kind of really oversimplifying things here it's obviously different on a, on a client to client basis there's always an n equals one kind of scenario with, with a client but what we tend to see in persistent pain 
at least from an Nike perspective, is that the nervous system becomes the nervous system becomes too conservative, where it feels a need to express pain when we don't really need to express pain, and and that can be because our body is just really kind of overstressed at many layers, and so with with those kind of clients, I let's say for example the client has a lot of lower back pain and it's extending down into their into their lower limbs, for example. With that client, I'm not thinking that a stretch is going to help them. I'm not I'm not thinking that kind of glute bridges are going to help that client. I'm thinking that I have to to really look at improving the nervous system's estimation of its capabilities from many different layers. So with those clients I'm going to do an awful lot of, of breath coordination work, breathing type strategies. Um, I'm going to do an awful lot of very basic loading strategies from a global standpoint. I'm not going to look local very, very often with, with these clients. I'm going to look at, okay, what allows that lower limb and that lower back to be robust in real-world movement? I'm just going to have to be very um, strategic with how I deliver load to their system. So obviously going very, very load early on, but doing it in a way that mimics how their body needs to express movement in the real world. So I'll still do an awful lot of kind of isometric, isometric-based strategy, strategies with those clients. I'll do I'll put an awful lot of emphasis on, on breathing, put an awful lot of emphasis on them getting good sleep, eating right, breathing right when they're outside the clinic. All those, those, those simple things that are, are kind of low-hanging fruit that improves our overall stress tolerance. That, and that I know that you have an awful lot of expertise in as well. And so all these things matter when it comes to a, a nervous system that has become too conservative in, in, its, in its need to express pain. Because, like I said, when, when we're in pain, we, we tend to be more kind of consciously driven in our control strategies, where if I have lower back pain or if I have even widespread pain, I'm probably going to think about my movement an awful lot more versus when I don't have pain. So it's, it's, it's very, very often you see in clinic where someone with a lot of lower back pain um, in clinic, and you ask them to, to kind of bend down towards their toes just to get an understanding of their current capacity. And you, you literally see them stop and think, how am I going to actually do this? They'll try, they'll try and pre-plan the movement in their mind. So they're using a very kind of conscious control strategy to move their lower back and move their body, which is very energy inefficient. And that's why you see an awful lot of fatigue in those clients as well, because they're, they're, they're overutilizing the conscious control, the higher parts of the brain to move the body. They're trying to think about their movement too much, which is just very, very energy expensive. And it, it feeds into the overall um, resourcefulness of the client. It feeds into the overall capacity of the client to be able to tolerate stress. And so it really it just it just really requires us to look at things from 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 multiple layers to really have an influence over that over over a client with, with those with that kind of presentation. It's not going to be a kind of a case where you get a you get a joint moving more and, and all of a sudden their pain's gone. It, it's not a case where you're going to get a muscle to to kind of get a little bit more stretch and a bit more range of motion in the muscle, and it's gonna it's gonna get better. It's it's a case where we need to look at things from 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 a multiple a multi layered standpoint. Well, Ryan, do you have any final thoughts that you want to uh, share when it comes to pain? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing that we try to get across to to therapists and to our clients is to to try and reframe your perception of stress. Fundamentally, I think we we tend to come into this profession thinking that stress is a bad thing or that client is very stressed 
we say these kinds of things, but stress is necessary for you to be able to adapt to real-world movement. It's just a case where we need to be strategic with how we apply stress and, most importantly, where we apply stress. So if someone has lower back pain, for example, do they need more stress in their lower limb? And is their back being overstressed, for example, or being overloaded? So just I would, I would, I would like to kind of, even people out there who are currently in pain, maybe not try to not narrow your focus too soon and look at the local area, but start to shift your attention towards maybe understanding and, and learning about where you might need to deliver more stress to ultimately share stress. It's called the sharing principle. In, in neuroscience where we, we, we need to get better at sharing stress over a greater surface area across many tissues and structures and systems to really kind of improve our, our overall efficiency. That would be the main thing. Perfect. And what do you do daily to keep your own self healthy? For me, I do an awful lot of um, specific breathing work throughout the day. Um, I'll, I'll kind of typically check in with my body throughout the day and I'll, I'll kind of get an idea of my, my breathing capacity by using kind of different tests. And I'll do a lot of kind of breath work focusing on exhalation-based strategies um, throughout the day. Kind of, I'll try and accumulate at least kind of 20 minutes of, of breathing work throughout the day. Um, that would be the kind of the main thing that I would do to improve my overall kind of health. And, and obviously just eating better and, and sleeping better as well is key. Awesome. And people can find you at iKneurology.com. Um, you also have some online programs at iKneurology.com as well. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah. So obviously with the with the situation at hand now, we, we had to shift very quickly to the online platform. So we actually shifted our whole on our whole level one in person course to online format. And so we have um kind of eight week we, we can drip feed that over kind of eight week modules for um for anyone that's interested and so we have cohorts so we have we offer every eight weeks uh we actually we, we sold out the first two cohorts and so it's definitely been been quite popular and, and it's been great to see people kind of want to learn more about how the nervous system influences movement so that's been fantastic and so if you're interested in that definitely send us a message send us an email uh, if you're interested in in kind of getting to the next cohort but we also have shorter online courses as well uh, that give you insights into different components of what we teach on our in-person courses too. So if you if you want to learn a little bit more about those, you you can definitely check out those shorter um, online courses too. And they're all they're all CEU CEU approved if you're a physical therapist. They're approved if you're an athletic trainer, um, and and you can reach out to us too if if you're interested in, in knowing if they're approved for a certain profession too. Because because we can, we can uh, we can work that out as well if if necessary. But yeah, check out the if you go to iknerology.com, you you you'll come across those online courses very easily, and so you can you can kind of navigate that as well to to explore more. Perfect. And is there any social channels that you spend most of your time on? Or yeah, so we we are, we're quite active on Instagram. Instagram would be our main kind of social media platform where we post we post every single day. So there's lots of educational content on there too that you can you can learn more and and obviously use to get a deeper insight into our approach too. And you can obviously feel free to message us directly on Instagram if there's anything that you'd like to learn more about. Perfect, Ryan. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, you know walking us through different ways that pain. Uh, can occur and different strategies for helping that out. I really appreciate it. And we all do too, as well. Awesome, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Isn't it pretty interesting, all the mechanisms that go into pain science? Ryan and his team are doing some great work over at IKN. So make sure to go check them out. 
You can get links to more information at summitforwellness.com slash 116. And if this information was helpful in any way, then head on over to your podcast player and leave us a rating and review. It helps more people to find our show and get access to all of the information shared in these episodes. And next week, I have Kathleen Trotter on the show, so let's go learn more about Kathleen. I am here with Kathleen Trotter. Hey, Kathleen, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? Oh, God. Um, I love Elvis and Dolly Parton. <laughs> no, seriously. it's it's. Um, I'm so sad because the Elvis Festival was canceled this year because of COVID. And my favorite time of year every year is to go up. There's the biggest, second biggest Elvis Festival in North America. It takes place in Ontario, which is where I live. And I go up every year for three days and I hang out with Elvises. In fact, I don't, if you have a way for people to see visuals, this is me and an Elvis right here on my desk. <laughs> well, I had to get uh, a copy of that photo and put it on yeah. the show notes. <laughs> Um, what will we be learning about in our interview together? Oh, um, I think we, I mean, we talked about so many things. You're such a great interviewer, but, um, healthy habits, how to make them convenient, how to make unhealthy habits utterly inconvenient. Um, and also just to have the wisdom to figure out the middle ground of fitness, not to go, um, too far in any one direction. Um, and how to have some fun. I think, you know, I think we had a lot of fun and sort of find the joy of fitness. And what are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? Okay, well, I, I love Brussels sprouts. Sometimes I joke to my partner, James, that I make myself Brussels sprouts sick. <laughs> um, but like, so that, I mean, that's sort of a joke. I love chocolate, as we talked about in the interview. I think that everybody needs to, you know, um, have a couple of their love it foods. So things that they sort of have in moderation that they absolutely truly enjoy that might not be necessarily quote unquote healthy, but it's good for their sort of soul. Um I love, what do I love? I love so many things. I love peppers. So one of the things about me is a lot of my friends call me hashtag pack a pepper because if I'm out and about and they open my bag, there's always peppers washed and I eat them like apples. Um, I also eat tomatoes like apples. Um, so vegetables, I think people should get more vegetables. I love salmon. I love avocado. Um, and James, my partner, makes amazing um, pulled pork and pulled chicken. So I don't know. I like all those foods. <laughs> and then what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? Embrace the power of now. So now is the only moment that we have true control over. And with health, we get so caught up in, you know, what we're going to do tomorrow, uh, what we're going to do January 1st. Um, so just stop worrying so much about the future. The future will take care of itself if you take care of the now. So when you're listening to this, get up, go get a glass of water, go for a five minute walk. So that would be my first thing. Um, and, uh, let go of perfection. So perfection is the enemy of getting stuff done. And so often with exercise, we are like, oh, well, I couldn't do my full workout. So I did nothing. Or, um, you know, I, I can't be perfect with my diet. So I'm going to go out and have like a burger and fries. And then you have the burger and fries. And then that leads to dessert. And then that leads to soda and more alcohol. So stop with perfect. Um, worry about what you can do on a consistent basis because the, the, the big workout you do once a month is much less important than what you do on a daily basis. Um, and then I think the third thing would just be kind of learn to parent yourself is the quote that I always use because a lot of us are really good at making healthy habits for other people. You know, if you talk to parents, they always have snacks for their kids 
in their purse um, or their bag, or, you know, they make their kids go to bed at a certain time. So they obviously have the skill set to do those healthy habits. They just are not applying them to themselves. So you have to treat yourself like you love yourself. You have to treat yourself like you would an elderly parent or your child um, and just respect your body and respect what it needs. Kathleen provides some more great ideas on habit change and reaching your goals. So until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.